from a communication standpoint, the big things that's changed in the world is that everybody owns a channel. Everything in our lives has expanded apart from time, which means we are more time poor than we ever were in the world. And so those two things come together. The fact that everybody's got a channel and the fact that we're so time poor to say that the attention is the most precious resource on the planet and it's the companies, the organizations with people's attention that win. We live in a world today with digital where everybody wants things tailored just for them. This is the thing that I like. You've got to make your customer the hero. And, and when I say customer, the person you're trying to engage. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 142. My name's Rob Woods, and this is the podcast for fundraisers who want ideas and maybe a little dose of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. So, dear listener, I'm especially excited about this one because I get to share with you ideas from someone who's had a big impact on my own approach to marketing, communication and fundraising in the last few years. Grant LeBoff is a marketing and communications expert and is the author of many excellent best-selling books, including Sticky Marketing, Digital Selling and Myths of Marketing. With two decades experience helping both commercial and not-for-profit organisations, Grant is great at distilling and explaining valuable insights about the changing environment we're living in. And leading on from that, what we should do if we're to build great relationships with people who care about our cause. So let's get straight into it. Here's my recent interview with the brilliant Grant LeBoff. Hello, Grant. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be with you. Yes, thanks for making time again to chat. I've been very grateful to you over the years. Not only have your books really helped me in my approach to marketing and communication, but then also you kindly came and gave a talk to one of the events we did for our Bright Spot Members Club. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you today so that our podcast listeners could get some of those similar insights. But before we get into the topic, to me, you're an expert in sales and marketing, especially in the most modern of contexts. But I wonder if you could start with saying, how do you see your role? What, what do you spend your time doing? Yeah, so um, I see my role as a bit a uh, marketing evangelist, really. I know I meet so many businesses all over the world who get frustrated that despite their efforts and despite their inputs, they don't get the outputs that they want, that they desire, that they crave. And often I think it's because people are living with myths about marketing and untruths about marketing, which kind of just become the vernacular. They become everyday things and they're not really analysed. And so I see my role as really going around the world and evangelising about marketing and explaining to people how it works and why it works and the things that they can do to make their comms really effective. Yeah, and a lot of the time you're doing that in the commercial context, but it is true that your books absolutely apply to not-for-profit organisations as well. My friend Richard Turner uh, first introduced me to your work uh, because he, he was so excited about some of the shifts he had made for SolarAid, where he, actually he still works now, uh, that were really different to the way they had been communicating before and some really wonderful, clear results that had come out of that shift. We may or may not have time to touch on that later. But for today, I wondered if you could share with our listeners some of the things you said at that original 
event. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rob. So there's a combination of two things that happen together uh, because of the change in technology and, and, and the digital you know, revolution, if you like, of the last 30 years or so. But I, I think the big thing is this. It, from a communication standpoint, the big things that's changed in the world is that everybody owns a channel. So if you go back to, you know, the early 90s, I suppose you'd have to go back to maybe the mid 90s. People very much got their information from official channels, whether it was broadcasters, whether it was publishers. And, you know, if you wanted a book published, you really had to get the patronage of a publishing business. If you wanted a record heard, you really need to get the patronage of a music company, etc., etc. And so the control of information was in the hands of the relatively few. And we now live in a world where everybody owns their own channel. So every individual pretty much owns their own channel, often more than one, but whether it's Facebook or X, Instagram, or maybe a combination of, of all of those. So that's one big shift in the way that information is disseminated. And because of that, there's another shift. And the shift is attention. So I would say today that the biggest resource on planet Earth is attention. It's the most precious thing in the world. And the companies, the organizations, and that doesn't matter whether you're a commercial organization or a, a not-for-profit organization, it's the companies, the organizations with your attention that essentially win. And, and getting attention is not easy. And, and, and just so people understand why attention is so precious today is because we live in a world where everything's expanded apart from time. And that's really important to understand. So I'll just give you an example. When I was growing up, there were four channels on television. So when you came home from school, you know, there was BBC One, BBC Two, ITV and Channel Four. And that was it. So as a kid, if BBC One or ITV weren't showing anything that you really wanted to see, then there were li literally was nothing on TV that evening. Today, when you live in a world of Amazon Prime and Netflix and Sky uh, and all the other digital resources... The idea that there'd be nothing to watch is kind of almost ridiculous. In other words, if you just had a subscription to Netflix on its own, there's probably more stuff you want to watch than you'll ever have time to. And then we've got all the other channels as well. So in other words, that's expanded. But your time where you can watch television hasn't expanded. In fact, it's probably diminished. In the old days, in terms of people communicating with you, they could call you at home, call you at work, write to you at home and write to you at work. Of course, they could meet you face to face, but they probably had to do one of the other things first to get the face to face meeting. Today, just as an individual, people are managing text messaging, mobile phone messaging. Most people still have a landline. They still have a landline at work. Then they've got WhatsApp messages, then any social media they're managing, whether it's a, face, a message on Facebook or X or whatever else. So in other words, you think how many channels... A single individual is trying to manage on a daily basis and the plethora of emails they're getting and everything else. And yet they've still only got 24 hours a day and seven days in a week to do those things. So in other words, everything in our lives has expanded apart from time, which means we are more time poor than we ever were in the world. And so those two things come together. The fact that everybody's got a channel and the fact that we're so time poor to say that the attention is the most precious resource on the planet and it's your com the companies, the organizations with people's attention that win. And therefore, your central tenet of marketing is about engagement. It's about how do I build an audience? And I'll come back to that in a second. And, and so I've got their attention. And you have your own media channels in which to do it. 
So in the way that the BBC make programs that they hope their audience likes, you have the ability to create content, whether you put that out on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or your own website or YouTube or any of those, all of those channels or some of those channels, depends of course the marketplace that you're targeting. But your ability to then put content out which will add value, and that's the key, to an audience whereby you can engage that audience and build awareness with that audience, a relationship with that audience, where people have good feelings towards your organization, towards your business. Your ability to be able to do that determines your effectiveness in your marketing communications. And that becomes a key cornerstone of whatever you do. And, and that wasn't true because marketing used to be transactional. You know, you send out a direct mail with a call to action. Most of it got thrown away. And then someone might take you up on that call to action or they might not. And it was probably transactional because if you're a commercial organization, even a not-for-profit, your direct mail probably didn't say, come and chat with us further because you didn't have the money to spend on a message like that. So your message said, donate now. This is the cause. This is the story. This is the urgent campaign that we're trying to raise money for. You know, donate now. And of course, most people didn't. So they threw it away. And you hope that you got enough people to donate that made the campaign worth its while. And that was where it went. Th today, that's not the case. You can engage people over a longer period of time because you don't pay for eyeballs in the analog world. You know, if you send out 10,000 direct mails, it will cost you more than sending out 5,000. Apart from the extra 5,000 print run, which is a negligible cost, the 5,000 stamps or postage costs is very, very expensive. Whereas on digital, you pay for the content creation. So in other words, it doesn't matter whether your video gets watched by five people or five million people. The cost to your organization is the cost of creating the video, not the cost of the viewers, which makes it then an extremely cost-effective platform if you can get it right. So that's the first part of really what we're talking about. But the second part, I used the word audience because I was using it in a media um, speak, but really that's the wrong way of thinking about it. The way to think about it is not audience, but community. And this becomes really, really important because we live in a very siloed world. In the old days, you needed volume to make anything work. So if you wanted to start a local group of cat lovers or the Doctor Who fan club in your area, you know, unless there are enough Doctor Who fans or cat lovers or whatever it was in your area, you know, you were going to meet in the pub on a Monday night and there'd be you and nursing your pint and nobody else would show up and it would be like, oh dear, this isn't, this isn't very successful. But today, of course, what the web gives you, what digital gives you is scale. So you can now start the Doctor Who fan club and might have 9 million members, but they can be all over the world. They don't have to be in your locality. And therefore, we live in a world today with digital where everybody wants things tailored just for them. This is the thing that I like. You know, I always joke that in the old days you went to a concert. I like Bob Dylan. So let's say you go to a Bob Dylan concert and you buy the Bob Dylan T-shirt. Now people want a personalized T-shirt with their name on it and the date that they went and saw him on. And digital print allows you to do that. Why do I need to buy a generic T-shirt anymore? So people want things personalized. And the way that plays out for a not-for-profit or even a commercial organization is thinking about the community which you want to engage. What do they look like? And, and, and there are three layers of that, really. There's the demographic stuff, which we all know about, although people don't do it very forensically. But, you know, how old are this community? You know, where do they live? Uh, what's their income bracket? Are there any gender specifications about that community? Maybe there isn't. Um, what's their lifestyle? Are they people with families? Are they people living alone? 
you know, what do they look like? What are the demographic characteristics of that community? That's one level of thinking about your community. But then you go to another level and say, what are the behaviours that this community partake in? So are these people that go to church on Sundays? Are these people that shop at Tesco's? Are these people that love golf? Are these people that love Star Wars? You know, what, what are the behaviours that they exhibit in this community that makes it cohesive, that makes it part of a community? And then the top level of segmentation, you need to do all three, by the way, is what we call psychographic, which is how do these people think? And when we say, what do these people think? What are they like? What don't they like? What values do they hold dear? What values are they not that keen on? And of course, you're making some generalizations, but in marketing, you have to because you're talking to you're not talking to individuals where you don't have to generalize, where you can address people specifically. You're talking to a group. But by understanding what makes that group tick, you can start to build a community and a community of people with shared values and shared interests. That's what makes a community rather than an audience. If I go to a, a gig at Wembley Stadium, that's an audience. Because, okay, you could argue we all have one shared value. We like the particular group or artist we've gone to see. But within that audience, you'll get an extremely diverse group of people, depending on the artist, of course. Whereas a community tends to be a cohesive group of people that have some shared values and some shared interests. Of course, that doesn't mean they don't have differences. Of course, they have differences. And there might be some things they don't agree on at all. But in terms of your not-for-profit, you know, whatever you're um, articulating for, what you're canvassing for, what you're trying to support and help in the world, what are the shared values and interests of the people that are likely to come around that? Now, if you understand that community, you can build something cohesive. And that's very important because that's when you start to create content that's valuable that those people care about, that moves them emotionally, that they care about, that they understand, that they're interested in because those two things have to come together. And when you start to pull those things together, you can create something really, really magical. I suppose the one other thing I would say, which dare I say this, Rob, in my experience, there'll be exceptions to this, so forgive me, but not-for-profits are not good at this bit. So if there's one bit they need to take away, perhaps it's this bit. And apologies to the people listening to this that actually are very good at this bit, because there will be some by definition. But You've got to make your customer the hero. And, and when I say customer, the person you're trying to engage. So if you're trying to engage a donor, why are they the heroes? And the reason why I say not-for-profits are not very good at this is because, and I'm generalizing, so forgive me for that, but I come across a lot of not-for-profits over the years, some of which, whom I've worked with. And what they do is they tell the stories about the people they're trying to help. And they can be very, very compelling stories. And I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment those stories don't get told. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But the problem is when you're helping somebody over there who might have a desperate situation and a very interesting and powerful narrative, and there might be some very, very good reasons why those people need and deserve and should be helped for sure. The problem is that's not necessarily about the donor. And the key is how do I make it as much about the donor as I make it about the people that we're trying to help. How are they related to those people? Where, and I don't think not-for-profits and their comms often make that link. They often expect the donor to make the link. Oh, there's these people over here that are in a desperate situation and I should care. Well, okay, on a human level, you should care. But why should you care? Why does it matter to you? Why can you be a hero? 
Why should you take some responsibility? Why should you get involved? And again, that comes back to who is the community we're targeting? Because there are thousands, millions of causes that are worthy. But of course, people have only got a certain amount of capacity in terms of attention and resource in terms of money and everything else. So why is it that I'm going to volunteer for that organization or donate to that organization or get involved in that organization and not that one over there? Albeit that both of them are very worthwhile causes. Well, some of that tends to be the community to which you as an organization decide to appeal, that you decide to foster and make your own. Um, and that becomes a very, very crucial part of any comms strategy, perhaps in some ways the most crucial part. Hey, it's Rob. I wanted to briefly jump in in case you'd like to get a much deeper level of training and coaching support than is possible in these short podcast episodes. I'm really proud of our Brightspot Members Club, which gives you full-time access to our fundraising training library, as well as a live workshop or masterclass every week. Rather than have me explain, I thought it would be most helpful if you could hear from someone who's used these resources. So here's a short clip from Pippa Hind-Walsh. I've been a member of Brightspot Members Club for a couple of years now and also attended a Brock's Mastery course. It's been amazingly helpful for me all the way through. I uh, had lots of different things to juggle as I've been going and I was new to the role a couple of years ago. So having the Members Club and all the resources on the Members Club there to refer to and to help me and to help my confidence was amazing. It's been a huge source of support for me. You know, sometimes fundraising can be a bit of a lonely world, especially if you work for a small fundraising team. People have different areas of expertise. Having that resource to go to, to to give you inspiration and to help you out and to grow your confidence is huge. Um, but also having that community and the chance to meet other amazing fundraisers who are probably going through the same challenges as you um, and that you can bounce your, your ideas off is absolutely key. If you'd like to find out more about either the Bright Spot Members Club, the Corporate Mastery Programme or any of our other training programmes, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. In terms of that important part, helping me, the person who may care about this cause, feel spoken to, feel like it is for me to care and take action and I can take action. I guess at its simplest, the more time we spend talking to the, the people in that group, meeting them in real space or, or virtually, whether it's actually a more organised insight gathering campaign or just meeting them at events and listening to them and, and or going to places where they go and seeing how they talk about the world, talk about their values, talk about these causes. I guess that's one thing we could do if in doubt, just find ways each month to spend more time hanging out with and understanding those that do care. But uh, what else can we do? And do you have any practical tips on, on how to make this work in, in practice so that we can then transfer those insights, ideas, language and so on into our communication. Yeah. So I agree with everything you said, you know, the more time spent with the people that are donating, that are supporting, that are helping, that are advocating, as well, of course, the end users, the people that perhaps you're helping as well, albeit if they're not the same, that's very, very important. In terms of um, how else can you do it? I think one of the things that people should do, but in an organised way, is use social media, not just to post, but to listen. Because when you've got donors, supporters involved with you and you've got those social media accounts, you can be following those accounts and starting to look at the common themes. And you can use keywords to help you do this on social media uh, monitoring software. But 
looking at those keywords, looking at things that they talk about, because what you start to understand is sentiment. You, are, you start to understand what do my community, what are the other things that drive them? What are the other things that they're interested in? What are the other things that are concerning them? And again, this is always in the round. You know, I always explain to people the difference between marketing and sales is marketing is brand or company or organization communication and sales is person to person communication. So, you know, if you're on a fundraiser on a street, you're really in sales at that point or speaking to individuals on a one to one basis. And of course, you can learn quite a lot from those interactions, albeit careful not to make one person's opinion the whole community's opinion. But 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 nevertheless, you can learn a lot cumulatively from that. When you're doing brand or company communications or organization communications, you are speaking to the community. And therefore, you do have to make some generalizations about that community. But again, the more cohesive you build that community, the easier that engagement and being able to give value becomes. But using social media to listen, to understand what's going on, to think about what people are posting and what they're thinking about on your topic, but on other topics as well. So, you know, you might be funding to supply water to Africa, which is a worthwhile cause, but you can still be seeing what does my community think about the cost of living crisis? What does my community think about this issue or that issue as they come up in the world? So you get to use social media as a listening post and as a window into the community that you're building and that you're central to. I don't think that replaces meeting people face to face and and doing all the things that you said as well. I think they're all great things. But nevertheless, um, it's very helpful to use social media in that way because it gives you it gives you scale and understanding, which is hard to get otherwise. Hearing you talk there about that face to face fundraiser on the street, it reminds me that usually certainly medium sized and larger charities have lots of great fundraisers who are having conversations community fundraisers, corporate fundraisers, trusts and major donor fundraisers, they are having lots of conversations. And if that person's half sharp, and usually they are, they are picking up all kinds of interesting insights and realisations of the kinds you've said. A challenge that kicks in, especially for those medium-sized and larger organisations, is the extent to which they are then given a platform, an easy platform with which to share those ideas and insights back to their colleagues in other teams, for whom these things could be useful and indeed higher up to those who might be planning the next campaign big picture or next week's social media communication and so on. I think unless organisations work really hard to ongoingly ask for those insights to be shared, benefit from the good listening that is usually being done, I think there is often a disconnect and we really miss a trick. Yeah, 100% agree. So for me, it's a process. When I ran my marketing agency, we used to have a Friday lunchtime meeting. And at the Friday lunchtime meeting, the agenda was very, very simple. What's one thing you learned this week? And everybody would sit around and say, I learned this week this. I learned this week that. And, and, you know, these days, even if teams are all over the world or all over a country or whatever else, I think, organizing, uh, I suppose it depends how big a team is as well, but organizing a a one hour Zoom or a one hour Teams meeting or whatever, where everybody, maybe it's every other week, maybe it can't be every week, but where people bring to the table and say, look, I've been mixing with our corporate donors this week. I've been mixing with our, you know, supporters this week. I've been mixing with our volunteers this week. And these are a couple of things I learned. 
about what they're saying, what they're thinking, what their world is. Just having a process for sharing that information um, becomes really, really important. So I, I don't think it's difficult to do, but I think it's about just having that as a process because without a process, it doesn't happen, unfortunately. Yeah. And it seems to me from reading books like Team of Teams by uh, General McChrystal, actually to do this 20 years ago would have been useful it's just that because the pace of change has speeded up in recent decades, literally my corporate fundraiser could be having a meeting next Tuesday and they could learn something that would help their colleague who works in community fundraising with you know groups and associations and rotary clubs or, or indeed help our next campaign the following week. So in the older days, it was valuable. Now I think it's essential for us to proactively realise lots of the most valuable insights are being gathered, but unless we've got that regular systematic process. And again, a key thing I like about your tactic you mentioned there is it's, it sounds relatively simple. It's not a big spreadsheet. It's not going to give me a headache to compose lots of paragraphs. It's a simple question and each person gets the chance to feed in. And ideally, a lot of the value is not when you're sharing, it's when you're hearing the insights from the other three people or nine people in the team or what have you. I guess uh, another question I've got is I was so affected several years ago when you explained this idea about the value of attention and the organisation that can happily regularly attract and, and gain the attention of those that care about a particular issue. That is the one that will win. And I wonder... Any other thoughts you've got on practically speaking, especially if I'm a, a, a smaller charity, you know, I might be a hospice in a particular part of the country or a, any local group. What are some other things we can do? We, you know, larger organisations right now, they've they've even got a podcast and so on. But goodness knows the resources you need to start and then keep one of those going. Um, but what are some practical things that smaller organisations can do? to ongoingly create content and have the resources to create at least some content so that the relationships deepen and if and when someone's able and wants to give, then obviously we're going to ask for that as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. There's a few things that people should think about doing, any size of organisation, but obviously if, you're, if resource is hard, this becomes perhaps even more important, although it's important for everybody. So, so there's a few things I would say. On a very practical level, you need to plan and you need to bulk produce because the idea of, let's say you're going to make a video a week. You can't make a video a week. You know, you can't get a camera crew down to make a video every week. It, it, it doesn't work. But what you can do is you can get a camera crew down and you can make 20 videos. When I say 20, I, d I don't mean feature films. Obviously, I'm talking about 90 second, two minute little sound bites, little clips. And you release a video a week. That's suddenly four or five months material um, for a half a day's work. That needs a bit of planning. You know, what's coming up? You know, we know Valentine's Day is coming up. and want to say something about that. We're making these videos in January. So let's do something for Valentine's Day now. Let's do something for Easter now. Um, so we've got those things planned and they're in the can, to use the phrase, so we can let those go. So one thing is to bulk produce, which is, which is a very important thing. And you have to think a bit like a media company, when media companies plan. You know, people are thinking about their, you know, in the newspaper world, for example, people are thinking about their summer holiday supplement, which will come out in February, March, when people are 
booking holidays, they'll be writing that in September, October. You know, they, they don't suddenly do it the week before. So, you know, the more you can plan and think about these things, uh, what's relevant to you uh, becomes very, very important. And the, the second thing is I actually think in many ways it's easier if you're, a, let's say you're a local hospice. Because if you're a local hospice, the community's there. You know, a hospice, as an example, I just, I know you're using that as an example, Rob, but just to take that as an example, because they tend to be small organisations, small charities, right? A hospice um, is a community hub. It's right at the heart of the community. You know, the people that should care about that hospice are the people living within a certain mile radius of that place. And so thinking about what makes this community tick, What's important to this community? If it's a farming community, if it's a city community, if it's, you know, what are the things that are important to this, this people? What, what are the things that make this community tick? What do people care about in this locality? What are the big issues for the local region? These ideas make it easier in many ways to really create content and, and stories and narratives that are interesting for the community who you're trying to speak with. So I think I think that becomes very, very important. Um, so I would say in that, I've kind of alluded to it, ask yourself all the time. It's probably the most important question you can ask if you're involved in engagement and content creation is what's the story we're trying to tell? Think in stories. Everything should be a story because stories capture people's imagination. Stories are emotional. Stories are interesting. So always think in terms of story. What's the story we can tell? What's the narrative we can put around this? The more that you can think in terms of story, the more effective any content you make will be. And so the last piece of that, and this is true for any organization, but again, if you're a small organization, this is very helpful, is stand on the shoulders of giants. And what I mean by that, you know, to turn uh, Isaac Newton's phrase, who can you leverage? I did this actually, it's interesting. I, I won't name the organization, but there was a Midlands-based organization, not-for-profit organization that I was working with and uh, quite, a, quite a reasonable size organization within the locality, uh, but cash-strapped and everything else. And one of the things we did was we actually leveraged um, the local football team. And when I say the local football team, they're a championship club. I don't mean the local Sunday league side, right? Because one of the groups that we were trying to help and affect in a positive way was disenfranchised young men. And you think, well, actually, disenfranchised young men, a lot of them like football. A lot of undisenfranchised men like football too, but nevertheless. So, you know, if you could get the manager of this championship club to make some short videos with you, if you can get some of the players that they admire to make some short videos, you get people's attention. And this club was happy. You know, this is a, a, a good organisation, a not-for-profit organisation. There was nothing in it for them apart from to try and help the local community. Um, so to get that football club involved, you can, ima you can imagine really raise the profile of the organisation, their views on social media when suddenly you're, you're interviewing the, the manager of the club, you know, went through the roof as compared with normal uh, views that they got. But local MPs, local business leaders, local youth leaders, uh, local celebrities, whether they can be athletes or, 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 or footballers or anything like that. Who can you leverage that has an interest? I mean, if you're a national organisation in your particular focus and the people you're trying to help, but if you're a local, like a hospice, actually the local football team, the local rugby team, a local celebrity, local MPs, local business leaders, these people have profile and often they're willing to help to get involved. And those they allow you to spread your net further to make your content much more interesting and dynamic. And so these kind of ways of thinking are extremely helpful when you're trying to engage a community. Just before we finish, Grant, because there's so much 
already we've covered, if there's one more thing that our listener, if they're thinking, actually, it's just I have to find ways to to get people's attention and keep it because of the quality and insight of our content. There's one more simple, even seemingly obvious thing they could be doing. What would it be? I think the big thing as well is to think in terms of emotion. People often, when they're making posts and things, they, they look at things in a very rational way. So, you know, it always makes me laugh. You know, you can waste time on things like TikTok, right? And you think some of the TikToks that you see are just inane. They're just silly. You know, just someone doing a dance to something and there's no meaning in it. And yet it makes you smile and people, but it's got an emotional impact. Even if it's a thing that makes you smile or it makes you laugh or it's just zany and silly or whatever else. But, But people don't respond to, you know, lots of facts and stats and data. People respond to emotion and therefore when you're thinking about a story that you're telling or something you want to get across or anything like that, the really thing you've got to think about is what's the emotional takeaway for the audience? You know, is it going to make them laugh? Is it going to make them smile? Is it going to make them cry? Is it going to shock them? But what is the emotional takeaway? Because I think people often don't think in terms of the emotional deliverable. They go, oh, this is the story we want to tell or, or this is the person we're going to interview or, or whatever. And, and all of that's fine. But just think of what is the emotional deliverable that this two minute video or this two minute article or this five minute podcast or whatever it is, what is it meant to be delivering? And make sure you deliver it. If it's meant to be a feel good video, Make sure that you do leave people with a warm, fuzzy feeling. If it's meant meant to make people smile, make sure it will. When you share a post, when you are moved or compelled to like or share a post, just stop yourself for a minute and think, why am I doing that? And I promise you it's because it's had an emotional impact on you. So, Grant, I'm just conscious of time. We've covered a lot of ground, both in terms of the background and the, the context for this stuff and then really good practical things that people can actually implement into their work so thank you ever so much for making time to chat to me just before we go if people want to find out more one of the things that i love about your work is this various really high quality and succinct films where you teach these ideas and lots more where can people find out more either free films and or we find out about your books and so on the best place to find me is stickymarketing.com which is my website, stickymarketingalloneword.com. And as you've alluded to, there's a lot of free resources on there people can access and, and hopefully enjoy. Yeah, thanks, Grant. And we'll make sure we put a link to that in the episode notes to this particular show. So thanks very much, Grant. I look forward to catching up with you very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, bye. So there you go. I really hope you found Grant's perspective interesting. As usual, there's a short summary as well as a full transcript of the episode and a link to Grant's website, Sticky Marketing Club, on the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. Now, if you find these podcasts helpful, or you've enjoyed my book, The Fundraiser Who Wanted More, or if you've ever found my webinars or my breakfast clubs helpful, and you'd like to give your team a boost in how they approach fundraising, then do check out the training days that we run in-house for fundraising teams. One of our most popular courses that has an immediate effect on your team's appetite for inspiring supporters is our Storytelling and Influence course. Or if you'd like to make a big positive shift in the way your charity approaches corporate partnerships and you'd like to hear more about our corporate partnerships next level service that my colleague Ben provides, check out the information on our website, brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. Finally, I know there's a good chance that you've already subscribed to the Fundraising Brightspot show, but if not, 
please do hit that button now. I'm super excited about the half dozen brand new episodes we're releasing over the next few weeks, and I don't want you to miss those. If you think this show would help other people, please share it on with your team and with other charities. Do let us know what you think. On X or Twitter, Grant is at Grant Leboff, and I am at Woods underscore Rob, and we're both on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and supporting our show. Good luck with your fundraising and communication. And I can't wait to share more bright spot ideas with you very soon. Bye.